The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Moore, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmoore.com. Well, I'm not the handiest of men. Uh, I have learned that uh, uh, I've learned that a lot, but still have uh, I still got a long way to go to learn what it means to be handy. Um, and one of the things that I have learned along the way is the importance of reading the instructions of the the things that you get. Um, those little books that come inside the boxes, whether it's by words or by pictures, uh, are, are very, very important for us uh, to look at. And I know what the finished product looks like, and, and, and I'll see all the pieces laid out before me and all the hardware that, uh, that goes along with it, but I assume in my brilliance and uh, my, my handy mind that when I look at all of this stuff that I can put it together in my mind and everything is going to be just the way that it looks on the box or on the web when I get it done. But it does not take very long, however, to find how incredibly incompetent I am. There are a lot of ways that you can screw up a project, and I have... Uh, uh, yeah, learned a lot of them, and I'm sure there's other and more exciting ways to screw up projects, too. I mean, it's, it's frustrating when you've invested time and you've invested money into something and you screw it up because you think you are smarter than the person that made the unit and smarter than the person that put the instructions together for you to make it properly. I want to present the, the final product to my wife unashamedly. I want her to look at it and say, wow, that looks so great. Good job following those instructions. You know, good job. That looks great. And that has never happened nor will ever happen when I go rogue and do the thing myself. Why? Because I have learned the hard way that it's always best to do things like this when we follow the instructions. When we approach our text today, we need to keep in mind uh, one thing, that we should always do things God's way. We should always do things God's way. There are many of us who go through uh, life much in the same way that I go through assembling furniture. We know that God has given us instructions on how to live, that he has given us a blueprint on how life works best, uh, and if we know that if we were to follow and obey it, that indeed life would be a little bit easier on us. But reading God's instructions and, and, and following God's ways, we, we feel like that's just a lot of work. And so we want to put the instructions aside and lay out all the pieces of life and, and see how they, they fit together and that it will just be good enough. However, when it comes to faith... Good enough never seems to work. Our text today illustrates the need that you and I have to be fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and fully committed 100% to obeying his word. Uh, we need to always do things God's way. So here are three things to consider from this text. The first is, is that we need to pay attention Pay attention to God's word. Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, uh, it presents us with some of the hardest textual challenges that we've had looking uh, at scripture in quite a long time. 
uh, our modern sensibilities when we look at verses 1 through 3 here in a minute. They appear to be beyond the bounds of what any decent religion would demand. These verses can and have and probably will drive people away from the faith and away from believing in the goodness of God. So it's very important that we don't treat this passage lightly, but that we tread lightly on it. We have to be careful to both soak in what the, uh, the text means for us today, as well as demand a careful understanding of what is happening here and, um, and why God calls for what he does. Verse 1. Samuel told Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. So Samuel goes up to Saul and reminds him that his position as king of Israel is divinely appointed. It comes from God. He is to be God's man. He, he is God's representative both in the nation of Israel as well as throughout uh, the world. And so here he is, the king, and because of that, it is crucial that he listens to everything that God instructs him to do in that role. The word uh, listen here in verse 1 uh, is the Hebrew word shema. And we've heard that, that word before when we've looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 through 5, when he gave Israel their most important command where it says, um, listen, or Shema Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. So the, the, the Shema is never a call to open up the ears and listen to what uh, is about to be said. It's not just that alone. Rather, the Shema is a hear and do, a hear and go. Hear this, Israel, God is one. Because of that, love him. That's what Deuteronomy tells us. And here, Samuel is telling Saul, you're the king of Israel. Now listen to what God wants the king of Israel to do. In verse 2, this is what the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts says. I have witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the, the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants, nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. See, this is, this is where the text gets really difficult for, uh, for a lot of us. How in the world can God be good when he demands such a brutal attack on an unsuspecting nation and seemingly innocent people. And not just a brutal attack, but he's ordering an extinction of a culture here. On the surface, this looks like ethnic cleansing. So what's happening? Well, obviously, verse 2 tells us that something happened between the Amalekites and the Israelites in the past when they were fleeing from Egypt. 
We can find that incident in, in Exodus chapter 17. If you want to write that down, that's fine. It, it's a long story in order to get into. But to make a long story short, God had given Israel a God-ordained mission to come out of Egypt and uh, go up into the promised land of Canaan. And along the way, Israel uh, was essentially peaceful, and the Amalekites came and, uh, for lack of a better term, gave Israel a sucker punch. They came out of nowhere and attacked Israel for absolutely no reason. And when they attacked Israel, they were essentially attacking the Lord himself. Uh, and so then, when God is telling them in Deuteronomy chapter 25, he, he instructs them to remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all of your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. So this was an attack on God himself. And God will not be mocked. And now here in 1 Samuel 15, the time has come. God orders something uh, called a holy war. And in this holy war, everything must be destroyed. This nation has set its face against the Lord, and it will see his face in judgment. This is not ethnic cleansing. This is ethic cleansing. This is a moral cleansing. And because of what transpired in the past, Samuel comes to Saul and says, listen, God's calling for a holy war, and the details matter. Go, attack the Amalekites and completely destroy them. Destroy everything. Don't spare them. Kill everyone. The men, the women, the children, the infants, nursing babies, oxen, sheep, camels, donkey. Now, since the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never be called to holy war. And the reason for that is, is because Jesus has already gone to war against the greatest enemy of sin. And there's coming a day in which everyone who is opposed to God and his will and his ways will face a judgment that is far more severe than anything the Amalekites here had seen. The judgment will not come through uh, an attack like a holy war, but in God's righteous judgment, um, we will see that our job is to warn modern-day Amalekites and to be obedient to God's word as it's revealed in holy scriptures. So now that brings us back uh, full scale to the first point here in always doing things God's way. And it's to pay attention to God's word. It's going to be really important when we get into our second point here in, in, in just a minute that Saul pays really close attention to the God's commands. The details matter. I think of uh, when I look at the directions of an Ikea dresser. I need to make sure that I'm not... Uh, having the wrong board on the wrong side, or having it upside down, or screwing the wrong sized uh, screw into uh, the hole that is there. If I miss any of that, nothing is going to matter. The details matter. And the same is true of hearing God's word. The details matter. If Jesus says that, for example... If you believe in Christ that you should be baptized, then we don't really have the right to 
say whether or not that is something that is optional for us or whether or not it's something that is good for us. He said it. We ought to do it. Um, when Paul says to put away anger, wrath, and malice and, and filthy language, he is not saying, we'll just put that away for a time period until it's made of best use and you can take those things out. He's saying get rid of them. We need to work towards that end. And Samuel told Saul very specifically what must be done. And at first blush, uh, it seems like he heard loud and clear. He gets an army together. And then in verse 7, it tells us that Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah to all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. And so far, so good, right? Well, not quite. Saul quickly shows us that, uh, that he only listened half-heartedly. He was more interested in convenient obedience rather than full obedience. And as we move to our second point, we'll find good company with Saul. And our second point then is that we need to fully obey God's word. We need to hear it and fully obey. So imagine with me that you tell one of your children that they can have an hour of television uh, if they wash the dishes. And let's say that washing the dishes is defined as loading up the dishwasher, running the dishwasher, and then hand washing all the dishes that either didn't fit into the dishwasher or that are not dishwasher safe. And after, they, after you give them that instruction, they're happy, they go and they, they, they do the job right away, they run into the kitchen, you go and you do another task for 10 minutes or so, and all of a sudden you hear the, the television go on, and, and you say, well, it's only been like 10 minutes. How did you do the dishes? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course I did. You know, I, yeah, I mean, the dishwasher's loaded. Yeah, we're, we're good to go. Like, okay, so you go and you look at the sink and you see that there are still dishes that are in the dishpan. You think, well, 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 what in the world is going on here? And, and you go and confront them and they say, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. You know, I, I'm, I'm planning on doing those so you can consider them done. Is that, is that child guilty of disobedience? Yes. At our home. Did I get an amen over there? Okay, thank you. Yes. Everson children. Um, at our house, we have a phrase that we've used for many words, uh, for, uh, for many years, and that we define obedience as right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. That is what obedience should be. And maybe he didn't like hand-washing the dishes. Maybe they didn't like the idea of that hand-washing the dishes was part of the deal. Either way, not completing the task right away, all the way, and with a happy heart does not uh, end in full obedience. Yet that is how many of us approach obedience to Jesus Christ. We feel that we have the right to pick and to choose that which things, uh, those things that he lays out for us in his commands. In order to do things God's way, we must not only clearly hear the words and the commands of our Lord, but we must also uh, desire and, uh, and, and uh, seek to carry out and, and carry out those things. So let's take a look at how this happened with Saul. Up through verse 7, things seem to be going according to plan. Like I said, he got a large army together and uh, he struck down the Amalekites. But now verse 8, there's something that Saul did instead of what he was supposed to do. This is verse 8. He captured King Agag of, of uh, Amalek alive. 
But he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and the choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Notice Saul's task was to destroy everything. Italics, underlined, bold. But here instead... Saul had his troops to send them to destroy everything that was unwanted. All the things that were of no use to them. But if there were some tools or some animals or, or a king that might be of benefit to them, well, let, let's keep them. And we'll find out here in a moment that one of the reasons that Saul did this is because he, uh, he was masking himself in religion and saying, this is actually a good thing that I did this. So this news uh, reaches Samuel's ears, not by a messenger, but by the word of the Lord. Look in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. And so this is the second really tricky aspect of this particular passage because it deals with God's repentance. Doesn't that seem weird? I mean, can God repent? Can God change his mind? Can he, can he regret? Uh, in, in a long story short, no, he can't. God is not saying here that if I could do it all over again, I would have done it in a different way. Rather, uh, what we are seeing is God's response to viewing the events that needed to happen in order to get to a better king in real time. It's as if he is knowing what needs to happen and then watching the movie reel of it and seeing real pain and real hurt in his people. But he knows that it needs to happen. And seeing this in real time is tough. And Samuel then goes about the unhappy task that many of us have had to um, face of going and confronting someone who is unrepentant and hurting others. Saul's been busy. Verse 12 tells us that he has even set up a monument to himself. But when Samuel finally catches up to him, Saul greets him in self-congratulation. Look in verse 13. When Samuel came to Saul, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He's basically saying, Samuel, what up, dog? Check this out. I did everything I was supposed to. Come and join this party because this is great. Samuel responds in verse 14. Really? What, then what's... What's the bleeding of these sheep that I hear back on the hills? It's like you did the dishes, huh? Then what are all these things sitting in the dishpan? And Saul immediately goes exactly to where you and I would be prone to, which is excuses and blame. Verse 15, Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, the cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. But the rest we destroyed. See what, what, what Saul's doing there? He said, the, the troops, they did it. 
I mean, it's a lot like you go back to the Garden of Eden when God goes to, to Adam and says, well, what'd you do? And he says, well, this woman that you gave me, I mean, she's the one that gave me the fruit. I really had nothing to do with it. I just ate it. I didn't know what I was doing. It's her fault. And Saul says, well, they thought it might be good for worship. Now look at verse 16. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Well, tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the, in the Lord's sight? Uh, the Lord's sight. The words were clear. God gave you a privilege and a power and you had one job. And you couldn't even do that. And I want to be honest with you that when I read this passage and all these passages about Saul in the last few weeks, I couldn't help but look at the passages and just totally judge Saul. <laughs> you idiot. Like, how can everything that you do keep getting worse with everything that you do? How can you continue to make these stupid decisions that affect other people? How can you think these things? But then the more I studied Saul, the more I felt like I was sort of looking into a mirror and seeing that I am just like Saul. How often is my life marked more by disobedience than obedience? How much do I ignore God's commands and arrogantly believe that I know better than God and live as such? Now, I know that I am not alone in this. I've been in ministry long enough to know that we all share a common burden. This room is filled with Saul's. People who have been deluded into thinking that we determine the completeness of our obedience. That we have the right to say when the job is done and when it is not or whether it's worth doing. It's filled with people who would be more happy to set up monuments to themselves, whether it be online or whether it be somewhere in the community, uh, than doing the Lord's will. It is filled with people who, understand, who must understand that we are not on equal footing with God. He is God. He is the boss. He is in charge. And as such, we don't get the right to tell him which commands work for us and which ones don't. We don't have the right to mask our disobedience by calling it righteous. He is the one who has the right to call us out, and he has the right to welcome us back in his grace. For Saul, he keeps up the appearance with excuses. Look in verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Samuel answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took the sheep, the goats, the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Not King Saul. He did not completely destroy the Amalekites, but only the things that he had no use for. 
And now in verses 22 and 23, Samuel lays out one of the most important verses in all of Scripture that you and I should take to heart. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, which is really interesting because that will end up being Saul's demise at the end of the book. And defiance is like the wickedness and idolatry. See, this isn't just a good Keith Green song. Like, this is the words of truth. That to obey is better than sacrifice. God is not looking for religious formalism. He is not looking for people who wear the right religious clothes and who act the, the, the right religious behaviors. He is looking for people whose hearts are inclined toward him and are in progress and working towards following what he wants us to not because we have to, or even because we, uh, um, because we need to, but because we can based on his goodness and his love and his mercy for us. Verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So not only is rebellion like the sin of divination and defiance is uh, like wickedness and idolatry, but disobedience is at its heart a rejection of God. Always do things God's way. Hear his words clearly. Seek to obey them fully. And finally, own up to not following God's word. Own up to it. One characteristic or one character trait that our culture seems to be seriously lacking right now is taking responsibility for our actions and our thoughts and our behaviors. It's much easier to deny. It's much easier to excuse. It's much easier to blame and play the victim than admit that we are wrong about something. Again, Saul is a good representative here. Look at verse 24. Saul answered uh, Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Well, that sounds really good, right? Like we want people to get to that point. I, I want my own heart to get to that point where I can say, I disobeyed the Lord and I want to be brought back. But I think there's more to his heart here. The repentance is hidden from the statement. Notice he said, I was afraid of the people, so I obeyed him. No, that's not the truth. He was leading the charge for this to happen. And notice in verse 25 how he just wants to uh, get forgiveness and move on. Oh, please forgive me, and then, then let's, just, let's just keep moving on. Let's forget that it ever happened. Forgive me and forget, sweep it under the rug, and we're good to go. Let's keep moving Forgiveness is good and it should be granted pending the right circumstances. But Saul isn't repentant. He just wants to move on. Samuel sees right through this. Look at verse 26. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you. Because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today, and it's given, to, given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the Eternal One of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. So Saul's sin here cost him everything. And even this would not lead him to heart change. Look at verse 30. Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow in worship to the Lord your God. You see, you see what he's doing? Samuel, I, I, I've sinned. I've admit that. You know, forgive me. Hey, you know, uh, forgive and forget. Let's move on. Forgive me, but make sure that I look really good in front of the people that I lead. There's no taking responsibility here. He can't get his mind around the fact that it isn't about appearances. It is about the heart. And we are inclined to excuse and justify our sin. And we're, in, we're not inclined to take responsibility and return to the Lord. But yet that is what God is calling us to do. This is a lesson that you and I have learned time and time and time again, and I fear that we're going to continue learning this lesson until the day that we die. And perhaps the saddest part of this entire narrative happens now in verse 34. Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So do you see what's happening here? Samuel is grieving over the failed kingship of Saul. God mourns what Saul has become. Saul just goes home and as if nothing is wrong. He's done what he's done. In his mind, he's forgiven and he's going to move on. Yeah, Samuel told him whatever it was and he goes on to live another day and all is right with, his, with the world. And the author now leaves us with the all-important question that when you dwell upon your own sin and rebellion and the sin uh, of those that you love, do you just put it in the back of your mind and go home and Keep on keeping on. Or do you, do you grieve over those things? Do you grieve over your own sin that brings hurt, not only to yourself, but to others around you and to God? God weeps when we do things our own way. How we select what we think we should obey or not. How we excuse and justify those things that bring hurt into our lives. But though he is grieved, he is not content to leave us as he did Saul. Saul is meant uh, to show us 
who we are when we live apart from the Lord and his will and his ways. But he was also pointing towards a better king who was to come. One who would fully obey God the Father without flaws. One that would not make excuses, that would not justify himself to save his own skin, but who was willing to put himself to death for our rebellion, for our sin, and our disobedience. And one who would rise from the dead to show the effectiveness of his person and his work and who would ascend to sit at the right hand of God the Father until the day comes when his kingdom will come in full and he will sit on his eternal throne to live and to reign forever and ever. Friends, this is King Jesus. And it is King Jesus that redeems us from all of these things that we've looked at here today. And through faith in him, we are forgiven and we are made new. Our repentance is genuine and our acceptance is full in Christ Jesus. He takes our unrighteousness and he gives us his full righteousness. If there's anything that our passage is telling us today, it is to walk away from being a spiritual Saul and walk toward King Jesus to stop the excuses and the blame. Own up to your sin and trust in this eternal king. Friends, this king is coming back. His name is King Jesus. And let's trust in him. Let's pray together.